always thankful for Allison and Zach leading, and I'm thankful that this past week was Allison's birthday, so just whisper it to her as you go past there, being there. Um, <laughs> this, this will relate here in a moment. I, I leaned over and, and, uh, and asked Scott how he was doing just a minute ago, and I said, you okay? And he, he thought I said, you're up, <laughs> Right? Because we, in this, a couple of weeks ago, I don't even remember when we said that, I asked God if he wanted to preach either the 19th or the 26th, and he said yes. And that's kind of like what we got here with Matthias being chosen, right? You know, is this the right guy? I don't know. And so uh, we never did talk about which Sunday he was going to preach. It's just going to be one of those two. And then Friday I saw him and I asked him, did you pick which day you wanted to preach? And he told me, he said, yeah, uh, 26th. Well, by the time I sat down in the car, I forgot which Sunday he told me. And so I texted him again. I said, you said the 26th, right? So just now when I asked him that, it was, he was like, wait a second, we said the 26th, not, not this week. Anyway, that kind of relates to where we are in the story right here. Because Jesus says something's going to happen, right? But when? When is that going to happen? And some of you go, maybe Scott should have preached this morning. That would have been really cool. Anyway. I've been all right. But we continue in Acts chapter 1, and we're going to look at the last portion. It's really the last two-thirds. You could say the last half, I guess. And This is a pretty confusing time for the church simply because it's a time of ordered inactivity as far as we were concerned. right? We feel like we got to be doing something and, and get after it and... and Make it, make it happen, right? And sometimes God says to wait and to pray. And that's where they found themselves last week when we looked at the ascension. Christ offers the Great Commission. He says, a few days from now, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, you're going to go. And they say, when is this going to happen? He says, trust me, you'll know. Right? You'll know when it happens. But when is it going to happen? You'll know. It's going to happen, and not many days from now. And so, one of my favorite characters in Scripture, Peter, gets up and starts talking. And that's where we're going to start today, uh, is uh, just uh, prior to Peter's announcement to his friends there. In uh, verse 15, we're going to read verses 12 through 14. I invite you to stand as we read God's Word together. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, and later in the message we will get through the end of the chapter. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying, and Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Lord, you, you promise us your presence. Help us to recognize it now. In Jesus' name, amen. So the header in this says, Matthias is chosen 
to replace Judas. We haven't hit that part yet. But what we find is that they head back in to Jerusalem and do something called waiting. And that's actually what I've entitled today's message. Because I really think that is one of the disciplines that is the most difficult for us. Is to understand God's sovereignty and realize that He is the one that's in charge. Because being created in His image, we have the ability to think ahead. We, we get a checklist of things that need to be done. And some of you are really good at those things. And, and you, you check it all off and then you get to the finish line and you realize, what do I do now? Well, what are you supposed to do when you're finished? What did God do when he was finished with creation? He rested. And we're bad at that. I would say that we typically mistake slothfulness for rest. Or at least I do. Right? Resting means we allow God to, ha to be God. To be in control of our circumstances and all the things that are around us. And so when we find ourselves in that place, sometimes it's really hard to just to recognize that we can't control these things. This is not something that I can do anything about. And that's where the disciples are. Jesus has said, go and wait. So, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is, near, uh, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. So the Mount of Olives was not very far from Jerusalem. Uh, depending on the commentator I read this week, it was anywhere between a half mile to three quarters of a mile. I, I read half, three-fifths, and three-quarters. Are they right? Yes. But really, you think about it, three-quarters of a mile is not very far. Right? It's not even, it, it's a mile to City Park from here. I know, I've lived here a long time and my step counter tells me those things, right? We, we realize that a mile is not too far away. And they go back into this upper room. It says the upper room. Likely one of the places they stayed and could have been the place where they did the, the Last Supper, the, where they in, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And then they did the census of things. The 11 were there. And who was missing? Judas. Now, I want us to be very careful as we look at this passage today, because I know what happens in the human mind, and I know what happens with a lot of folks around here, because I hear the conversations you have as we start diving into these things. Judas is a major person of curiosity, right? And I think that's why Luke addresses it in the, in the text here, is because we kind of want to know what happened to the guy. And we end up chasing that rabbit about all of these different possibilities of this or that. And what we find is that Scripture does address him. And he also, Scripture also moves on from that. And I think sometimes we get caught up on a little theological horse of whatever it may be that interests us personally and it ends up causing us to almost be slothful in our faith because that's the thing we end up dwelling on. We are going to look at Judas today and we're going to, we're going to see what happens with him, but, or what happened to him and, and how the disciples decided to address this. But first, we need to see what Jesus had called them to do. 
And that is in verse 14. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Some things have shifted among the populace here. Remember the last time that we heard of that, well, not the last time, but one of the major times we hear about Mary and, and Jesus' brothers, Jesus is basically saying, you let them take care of themselves. You are my brother. You are my sister. Yet now, after his ascension, we see that Mary and the brothers are with the group of disciples and the women and, and, and the other people they name along the way. This is also the last time Mary is mentioned in the New Testament. Now, some of you may have come out of a theological tradition that makes a lot of Mary. But I, please realize that Mary was a person that needed her son to be her savior, just like you need her son to be her savior. Okay, nothing divine there. The theology of the New Testament is not built on Mother Mary. It's built on Jesus Christ. The I am, the first and the last. And so we need to realize that the focus of everything forward goes into Jesus and what he does through the work of the Holy Spirit. And what we see in the Gospels, obviously we need to study the 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 implications and, and the things that happened in Jesus' life. And the rest of the New Testament after that is, what do we do with it? Right? What are we going to do with what Jesus did for us? And this is how the early church responded to that. And one of the things we find about the early church is they needed grace. They were not any more... Well, they're not any different than us as far as their need for their Savior. Now, they had a distinct advantage in this room right here is that they got to see him face to face and learning them there. But Jesus said, it is not to your advantage that I stay, right? He says, the Holy Spirit won't come if I stay. So now go and wait. And what are they supposed to do when they wait? They pray. Remember, the circumstances here were dangerous, Jesus had been killed, okay? He had been betrayed. That, and, and the disciples probably, well, among the church, they might have been popular. But in the greater populace, they probably weren't very popular. So they stay in the upper room and they pray and they wait. They wait for the Spirit of God to move. And in the meantime, they try to do something about their circumstances. And the question would be, were they sinning here by what they're about to do? Because I know some of you might ask that question as we look forward to what's going to happen here. And I don't think they were. Peter did open his big mouth. He did probably jump, a, jump the gun a little bit on some things. But they were just trying to deal with the circumstances they had been dwelt and just like Christmas every year, or your birthday, or that day you're waiting for something amazing to happen. You know, parents that might be waiting for the birth of a child. When do we know it's coming? I know, but it's going to be here. It shows up right there. You know, there's evidence that this is going to happen, right? We are excited for that moment. In the meantime, we are called 
to trust the Lord. And that's where the disciples find themselves right now. Peter stands up and opens his mouth in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. So their number had grown. How many people watched Jesus die on the cross? Three or four. The disciples were scattered. At the resurrection, they start coming back together, and they start coming back together. At the end of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, Paul says that 500 people at once saw Christ, right? At this moment, there's about 120. So in the matter of just a few weeks, we see that their number has grown. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now we're going to come back to that in a minute because... Uh, Luke does a parentheses here, and that's edited parentheses, by the way, but kind of explaining what happens to Judas. Um, and, and we're going to come back to those scriptures that Peter mentions here. But now he says, this is what happened to Judas, Luke does. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Not G-rated. Right, I and I find it interesting how they address Judas. Luke only says his name as many times as he has to. He says, "Now this man, right? Now th this passage parallels in Matthew twenty-seven, but it doesn't look exactly the same. It says that Judas betrayed Jesus for the price of 30 pieces of silver, and then when he realized what he did, he went and threw the, the money back in him and went and killed himself. Well, it says here a field was purchased, that he acquired the field. And so people call that inconsistencies. The easiest way to deal with that is to harmonize what happened, that a field was purchased with that money, that that's the field that Judas killed himself on. He carried the burden of his betrayal as the one who bore that curse. And it became to known in verse 19, it says, It became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, or Akeldama, that is, the field of blood. How do you properly say that word? I speak English. Say it the way you want to. But the field of blood. So, they, it, was a, it was a cursed place. It was purchased with blood money. So Judas, in his betrayal, took his own life. He realized what he did. That's pretty harsh. That's pretty, pretty bad. And the disciples realized that he had a specific place. And he felt like that job had to be fulfilled. And so they took a vote along the way. We're going to get back there. But the, the, uh, the fulfillment comes from the book of Psalms. There's actually three different Psalms I want to address today. And it's perhaps not the only ones, but they're the ones I tracked down along the way that address this particular thing. The first one is Psalm 41, verse 9. And if I was smart, I actually did get them in the computer today. We're going to find out. Psalm 41. It says, even in verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, 
has lifted his heel against me. So this song could be one of the classifications of a messianic song, describing the life and ministry of Jesus, that he would be betrayed. Okay, that's not actually one of the ones they're quoting right here. Let's read verses 20 and 20, or verse 20 right here. It says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, this is Peter saying this, by the way. Peter is quoting the scriptures. May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So, hopefully you stayed in Psalm 41 for a second there. Go to Psalm 69, which is another one of the Messianic Psalms. A lot of prophecy in the Psalms, by the way, guys. If you haven't read through it, Psalm 69 is, is significant. But Psalm 69, verse 25, it says, May their camp be a desolation, and let no one dwell in their tents. All right? For they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Peter's quoting from that psalm here. And now we see a third one. I believe it's Psalm 109. Yeah, Psalm 109, a few pages later. Psalm 109, verse 8. May his days be few, and may another take his office. So this offers us some explanation about how the disciples viewed what they were doing at that moment. That Jesus had the 12 of them there for a reason, and they said, this, this, the seat's empty, somebody needs to fill it. But Judas's betrayal was prophesied. Yet he still made the own, his own choice to do it. That has to do with the sovereignty of God, and sometimes it makes our heads hurt a little bit on that. But God brought together his plan to bring salvation. And part of that was that one of the ones he loved would betray him. And that's a hard pill to swallow, that somebody would do that. Did Judas think he was doing the right thing? Well, I think in the moment he did, and then almost immediately he realized what he did was evil. And that's why he took his own life with it. So, the disciples viewed his seat as one that needed to be filled. Did Jesus say anything about that in the first 11 verses of Acts? No, he didn't. But he did offer the opportunity and the chance to, uh, to let another take his office in that. So one of the men, in verse 21, who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection." They truly believed that it was important that their full band be present. They needed the 12. And so they decided to take a vote. That's what happens right here. And they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside as to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And we see in the New Testament how many amazing things Matthias did. 
right there. That's the only time we hear about this guy. So the question happens, did the disciples sin? And I hear people ask this. Did they sin by taking a vote? And I don't think so. I think they were doing the best they could with what they had at that moment. They were in that, that kind of the heavy, vacant spot of waiting. And where God says, you're going to have to trust me. And so many of us in those moments make decisions that may not quite be centered perfectly on what God had intended. But it doesn't mean we had a sinful heart behind it. The fact is, is that both of these men were considered to be godly. Or else they wouldn't have been up there in the first place. Right? They were witnesses of the things that Christ had done. And for all we know, they had great missions in the early church. Right? But I don't think Matthias was the guy that, that Jesus was going to put into that place. And actually, tradition holds, and we're not going to chase this rabbit a long way today because we'll end up talking about it later. Church traditions holds that it's actually Paul that ends up taking this place. That the Apostle Paul ends up leading the mission that might have gone to somebody like Jesus. Which is, there's an interesting parallel there because how did Paul start out as Saul, the persecutor? He was one who pursued the church to kill Christians. And then God changed his heart and he became the apostle to the Gentiles. It's kind of the opposite of what happened with Judas, right? Judas was decently regarded, although if you read the Gospel of John, you'll, you'll, you'll see that John, in his writing, had nothing good to say about Judas. Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. Uh, or one of our guys say, Judas was just the worst, right? But why that perspective matters. The forward perspective matters because he saw what Judas did. In the midst of Jesus' ministry on earth, he was there. He was a part of it. And unfortunately, the job he had to fulfill was the most difficult job of all. And there. And the most, I don't know, I don't even know what the right word is for it, uh, deplorable of the tasks, and that is to betray the Lord. So, in the midst of the waiting, God called the disciples to trust him. And we find ourselves in a pretty similar place right now. Jesus, at his ascension, we just saw it at the beginning of the chapter, right? He said all these things, and they were looking on, and he looked up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, two men stood behind them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking to heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. We, for the last 2,000 years, have been waiting for that to happen. Now, we do have the advantage of what we're going to see here in the next passage, that the Holy Spirit has come. 
But before we start pinning the disciples on their judgment here, start thinking how you would have responded in that moment. If you have been in the band that got to personally listen to Jesus preach, and he says as he leaves, just hold on a minute. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Well, how do we know it's the Holy Spirit? You'll know it when it falls. And in that day, in that time, we see some amazing things happen as that comes. We must realize that the Holy Spirit fell on the church at that moment, and it's been present there ever since. I take issue with some theological viewpoints that talk about a second manifestation of the Spirit upon your life. There may be times when God is truly working through you and it's obvious and you know the Holy Spirit was in that. But Jesus tells us, I will never leave you or forsake you. He's been here the whole time. He's been gracious to us the whole time. Yeah, He does bring judgment when He does and in His sovereignty. And He does convict of sin, but it's all with the goal of fulfilling His commission. And now he is putting the disciples in a place where they are to be unified in waiting for him. And again, we find ourselves in that kind of place now. How did they know that the Spirit came? Well, it's pretty obvious if we go read forward a few passages. Tongues of fire on somebody said that, you know, that gives it away. How do we know when the Holy Spirit is in our midst? Well, I, I, ask, I ask, have we considered what Jesus called the disciples to do here? What did he call them to do? He called them to pray. He called them to trust. He called them to wait. And I hear people, you know, Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. Absolutely, that's a great prayer to pray. But he comes in his time. And in the meantime, he's given us a task, and that is to go and to make disciples of all the nations. And he empowers us to that now, that we see the Holy Spirit in us. That is the seal of his promise to us. And how will the Holy Spirit work in our midst along the way? I, I, and I've said this before, and I'll talk about it more next week. I'm not a cessationist. I think that each of the gifts that the Spirit gives, He gives for a reason and for a purpose. And it's always to make much of Him. It's never to draw attention to the person who receives that gift. It's always to point to Christ. So do we trust Christ enough to wait. What are we supposed to do while we wait? Examine our hearts. See whether we are ready for what God is going to do in us and through us. I think we should recognize that he is with us now in that, in our waiting, in our suffering, perhaps in our discouragement, even in our victories. Recognize he is there. How long a time was this? Well, 40 days after his resurrection was the ascension. Pentecost is 50 days 
after the Passover, it's about a week and a half. But they didn't know that, right? Here they were, showing great faith and doing the best they could along the way. Sometimes in the moments where God seems farthest away, He's the moment that he is about to do something amazing. And some of you might be in a place like that right now. The promise of, the, of Christ is that his spirit is in you. If you've trusted him as your savior, if you've trusted in his completed work on the cross through his resurrection. And he's getting you ready for what he wants to do. But remember his sovereignty in the midst of all of it. His reign, his power, his authority. I guess the question I ask as we come here is, do we trust him? Things don't look like they used to look. Right. But sometimes we have to trust God all the time, I should say. We need to trust God where we are now. I can't, I can't do something about 50 years ago. I might find some sin that needs to be confessed and say, well, we blew that. Let's not do that again, Lord. I'm sorry. We repent. We turn back to Him. But in these moments of waiting, God brings His fire of cleansing on our lives. And can teach us, if we're willing, how to trust Him. Because I don't think any of us would read the end of Acts chapter 1 here and think God was not at work. We just have to know that He is there in the waiting. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know the struggles different folks are going through today. But I know you're there. I pray for your peace on our hearts, for your grace to guide us in moments where we can trust you more. I thank you for your faithfulness in the quiet. I thank you that you are gracious to us as we desire to bless you. Help us today. Help us.